We can get it all right and still not have great customer service. Getting it all right keeps you from having bad customer service. It doesn't help you achieve great customer service. Welcome to Aim Higher, a show designed to help us realize the leadership potential inside of all of us. I'm Skip Pritchard, CEO, author, blogger, student of success, and your host. I'm here with my friend, Mark Sanborn. Mark is a guru of leadership, customer service. He has worked with some of the largest companies, smaller companies, all kinds of companies, individuals for, I won't say how many years, but for a while. He's also sold millions of books and he is one of the most quoted people on uh, leadership and customer service. I want to ask you about customer service. What is it that makes customer service extraordinary? What is it that you just say, wow, that is it? I think customer service becomes extraordinary when it's memorable in a positive way. I always say we don't recommend movies we like. We recommend movies we love. Now, if I see a movie and you ask me about it, I'll say, yeah, it was a good movie. But if I see a movie and I thought it was a fantastic movie, I call you up. I say, Skip, go see, don't miss this movie because I want you to have the same experience I had. And so I think what makes customer service great is when we say, I got to tell my friends. Honey, guess what happened today at fill in the blank? And the thing that we forget is that sameness isn't memorable. You know, we can get it all right and still not have great customer service. Getting it all right keeps you from having bad customer service. It doesn't help you achieve great customer service. The second thing I think is that great customer service isn't perfect, but it's good at recovery. I had coffee this morning with a friend and we were talking about this heinous experience uh, that I had had. And what didn't come out of it, even though I twice contacted the company to give them some feedback. In a very professional, civil way, I said, look, I've had a bad experience. I want to give you the feedback. And the manager at this particular establishment ignored me both times. And my friend Dave said, wow. You just got a chapter in a book. Yeah, I was going to say, for me, it's speech material. But my friend Dave said, isn't it amazing that that stuff happens? I said, no, it's not amazing that those experiences happen. It's amazing that when a company has a chance to make it right, they don't. I pride myself on the service we provide in my little company, but we're not perfect. What we're pretty good at and what we work very hard to do is when someone does experience a service failure, overcompensating, not just Mm. fixing what broke, but making it up to them. So they then say, you won't believe what happened. We ordered some stuff. It got lost in the mail. They not only replaced it, they sent us $100 worth of free stuff. That's an example of how things are going to go wrong. The question is, what do you do to correct it and recover from it? Well, I want to talk about that because you you say $100 of free stuff. I've told a story about Morton's and somebody was sending a tweet out that people have heard. And, you know, I wish I could have this filet. And all of a sudden it's there at the airport and it's extraordinary. And it's one of those, I have to tell you. And it became a, a news story. But what about the entrepreneur, the small business who's kind of like, I got to watch profits. And every time you talk about customer service, you're talking about giving away all this money and I'm going to go broke trying to create customer service. What do you say to that person about thinking customer service, if it's too good, I'm going to lose my shirt? Well, I think that's largely an illusion because the challenge is to outthink rather than outspend your problems. There are a lot of things we can do that don't cost us much. Uh, My brother, as we were talking earlier off camera, owns a a brew pub. And I know what craft beer costs, I mean the hard cost. And even really good craft beer, a a pint of craft beer is going to be somewhere between 60 to 85 cents on average. So if you have a bad experience in a restaurant and uh, your, your food took too long, why wouldn't the waiter, the wait person, come over and say, let me buy you a beer? Well, on the menu, the beer is $6. 
the hard cost of them might be 60 cents. I'd be giddy. I'd say, you know what? Make me wait longer. Buy me a second beer. And the point is, for 60 cents, you've just regained the customer's business. You didn't comp them the meal. You didn't you know, give them a, a certificate for $50 on their next visit. But you found a little thing that mattered to them but didn't cost you much. And I think that's really, in my book, The Fred Factor, as you know, because you've, you've been a great uh, supporter of that work. I say, replace money with imagination. Replace capital with creativity. Because the more money you throw at something, the less likely it's the best solution. Money is what you do when you lack imagination. Creativity is what you do when you say, you know what, I'm going to make the customer happy, but I'm, I'm going to get creative in how I do it. Mm. And just personality too, you know, just you know, give them that beer and, and have a little fun with it and be be real. Such, such, I'm thinking about a it's story so myself easy. It's so uh, easy. that happened last night. One of the things I, I recently read, I don't remember when, but you were talking about the number one enemy of customer service. And you said it is indifference. And it just drives me crazy when they seem to be like, yeah, whatever. Tell us a little bit more about that. Seeing indifference, what does that do? Indifference is a lack of engagement. I'd rather you disagree with me than ignore me. You know, we've all had that experience where we reported a problem and the person said in a blasé tone of voice, oh, I'm sorry. Well, first of all, they're not really sorry. They're not sincere. And secondly, they haven't offered to do anything to make it right. I think one of the big mistakes we make in the marketplace is we don't teach employees that neutrality is a myth. There's no neutral. You're either for the customer or you're against them. You're either engaged or you're disengaged. And if you're disengaged, they're not saying, oh, honey, that's okay. They're just neutral. They're saying they're indifferent. Well, let's talk about training. You mentioned training for customer service, hiring for customer service. If you have to split it, you know, you have to do both, hire and train people yeah. for customer service. But if you had to weight it more or the other, which is more important, hiring or training for customer service? Or can you, is that a false uh, assumption? False psychotomy. Well, the answer is both. Hire nice people, teach them the skills. Nice is not a skill. Nice is a predisposition. There are probably people that can take mean people and make them nice, but you and I don't have time, right? We don't have enough budget to do that. So you hire nice people and then you teach them the specific skills. So you hire a nice person to be a bank teller, different set of skills than if you hire a nice person to work in a call center. You can teach skills. Nice, hard to teach. Hard to teach. Hire for nice, teach for specific skills. How about customer service? So we talk about individuals, we talk about leaders, we talk about managers. How do you develop a customer service culture where it's passionate? You know, I've talked with people like Zappos CEO, Tony Shea, and others who have yeah. these cultures. How do you develop that culture of passion for the customer and really not having any you know, indifference, but you know, I really care? How can you teach that at a larger scale? Well, Tony's a great example, and, and I'm a big fan of, of Zappos, and, and Tony and I uh, have become familiar uh, via email. He's endorsed a couple of my books, and I've studied his company. The thing is, it begins with a leader because the, the leader is emotional about what matters. Now, by emotional, I don't mean they're some kind of hyperbolic cheerleader, but you know from where they spend their time, their money, their attention, that this matters. And people that know Tony knows they, they know what matters to Tony. When you're willing to get emotional about what matters, that makes a big impact on the people who deliver what matters. And I think the second part of that is, is you give people a very clear sense of values, and then you give them the latitude to deliver. Uh, one of my favorite examples, 2005, December, call center uh, rep for Zappos spends something like four hours and five minutes on the phone with an elderly woman who calls to return a pair of shoes. Now, returning shoes doesn't take four hours and five minutes, but it's Christmas. The woman is lonely. She talks here four hours and five minutes. And I always say, what would have happened at most companies? Boom, you're out of here because you just blew your call ratio for the day. At Zappos, 
they reward it. the metric, right? Because they say the, the, the mission to deliver wow. If your mission is to deliver wow, you better deliver wow. If your mission is to say, you know, not spend too much time on the phone, that's a different mission statement. But it's about being really clear on what matters. And I think uh, Tony and Zappos are very clear. It's about delivering wow. And by the way, as we both know, and as, as, your, as our listeners know, it's been very profitable. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about leadership. And I wanted to start off with what your definition is of leadership. What is it today? There's so many definitions, so many famous people and not so famous people have given definitions. My own uh, working definition is that leadership is the ability to help people and organizations surpass themselves. Because to me, the test of leadership is, is anybody or anything better because of you? And if they're not, then you might be a terrific manager. And of course, I, you know, being a guy that loves words, I go back into the, the origins of words, management to handle. It comes from the root word to handle. And leadership is always about movement and growth. So good managers maintain the status quo. They create systems, implement systems, maintain systems. But leaders take people and their organizations from where they are to where they could be. So that to me is the real test of leadership. That's great. What about leaders as they do that? They're taking people to a new place. And those people, and eventually the, the organizations or institutions or corporations, they stand out. The team stands out. Not just the, the leader stands out, but you, you notice something about the atmosphere of a place. Why is that? You've worked with so many companies. What is it? What is that secret sauce that makes people really rise up? There are a lot of ingredients in the secret sauce, but a couple come to mind. One is leadership is not ambition. Ambition is fine. I have nothing against ambition. But when you do something out of ambition, you benefit from it. Leadership always benefits the greater good. So you always know that a leader has had an impact when not just he or she, but their team, their organization, their community has done better, has had a, has a ripple effect. So I think good leaders are able to not just be heroes, that's hard enough, but good leaders make heroes of others. And if you can make your team a hero, each of them, they'll do amazing things. Uh, leaders that are very self-centric, very self-absorbed, generally don't last long and they don't do well. Another part of the secret sauce is I think leaders are, are students of both human behavior and organizational behavior. I use the illustration about Mount Everest. I've never climbed Mount Everest. I have a couple friends that have. I have a couple friends that have tried, but not summited Mount Everest. And I always say the, the only thing I know for sure about climbing Mount Everest is nobody ever ends up on top of Mount Everest accidentally. Yeah. You, know, you, you never hear your neighbor say, you know, I was out walking the dog last there night. There was a Sherpa. Yeah, <laughs> I saw a Sherpa. We went left on Maple instead of right. Boom, I'm on top of that. That doesn't happen. And so I think that, that leaders are so intentional in about knowing what they want to achieve, and how to achieve it because they're students of their craft. They're students of, of human behavior. They're students of organizational behavior. So I think those are two ingredients in that secret sauce that you talk about. And who is around them is so strategic and deliberate as well. How do they pour themselves into those people so that they can make it not just about themselves? Well, that's a good question because you've already suggested the answer, embedded it in the question, and that is they invest in their people. They don't just withdraw from their people. I remember, you know, I've been in this business 30 years in leadership development, and there was a time where we were laying people off right and left. You know, the oil industry today, because of the economics, are laying off a lot of people. And it's sometimes necessary, but it's always easier to lay off people than it is to draw out people. 
You know, it's always easier to downsize than it is to take your existing staff and pull out more that they could contribute. And I think that that we take the quick fix. But the way that we draw more out of people, I think the beginning point is good leaders see more in people than people see in themselves. I mean, if you think about a great leader you've had, I've had that experience where someone came to me and said, hey, Mark, I want you to do this. And I thought, are you kidding me? I mean, you go back to the Bible, Moses, right? I mean, if you're if you're a person of faith and even if you just know the story, God said, Moses, do this. And Moses said, are you kidding me? I don't even give a good speech, right? I'm not even a Toastmaster. And yet... He, he, I, I do recall that Toastmaster being... Yeah, there. it was the first chapter in the Exodus chapter of, of, of Toastmasters. But Moses found out he had far more capabilities than he himself knew he possessed. And you don't have to be spiritual or religious to know that a good leader sees in you what you may not recognize in yourself. Well, it reminds me of one of your books and your beliefs that you don't have to have a title to be a leader. Yes. And it's not really just about, it's not at all about positional power. I, I'm, I talk a lot about the, it's the personal power. Talk a little bit about that. How did that book come about? And how do you get people to realize when they think, well, I'm not a leader. You're the CEO. I don't need to worry about that. And you have to say, no, you have the potential to be a leader. How do you get someone to get the light bulb to go off that you can be a leader? Ironically, most of American business history was about teaching people that there was a leader and that you were supposed to follow him or her. So this idea, as simple as it seems in, in 2016, was pretty radical a few years ago. And it came out of a conversation with the uh, head of a, a tech company in South Denver. We were having coffee and he told me a story about having this mission critical project. And he thought of all the people on his team who could lead it. And he settles on this guy, we'll call him Tom to protect the, uh, the guilty. And he goes to Tom, he says, hey, this is a big, important project. I'd like you to lead it. And Tom, obviously a strategic uh, career path kind of guy, says, well, I suppose if I say yes, you'll make me a director. Now, director was the coveted title at that company. So obviously, Tom was either looking for a reward or thought he needed a title to get the job done. Well, my friend said, I had to rethink it. And he came up with his second choice, who happened to be a contract employee. Now, that's important because as a contract employee, he could not make her a director, Right. And uh, he went to her, and let's call her Gail, and he said, I want you to lead this project. It's important. I, I got to tell you right up front, you're a contract employee. I, I couldn't give you a title if I wanted to. And that's when the light bulb came on because he shared this with me, and this became the genesis of the book. She said, that's fine. I don't need a title to be a leader because she recognized that it wasn't her title or her status or her position, right. but her skill set that made her a leader. And she went on to uh, successfully achieve the project. So from that idea, I came up with the premise that most people know that having a title doesn't make you a leader. And a leader is someone who makes things better. And you don't need a title to do that if you have the right skill set. You really don't. What about pitfalls of leadership? Um, so you don't have a title. Some people would think, oh, that's, that's going to stop me. That's a blocker. That's a pitfall. And it's not. You just explained that. What pitfalls are common, though, that kind of trip leaders up that you've seen? I mean, you've worked with leaders of companies of all sizes. What are the couple that come to mind that that is a pitfall? There are seven that I've isolated over the years, but a couple that come to mind quickly. Number one is when a leader believes that uh, his team they should be mind readers that because they know the leader That'd be nice. and they're clear. Yeah. They're, you know, if you're married, you know how that works <laughs> out. Right. Uh, I shouldn't have to tell my spouse, she knows me, she should know, or I shouldn't have to tell him he knows. Nobody knows. I mean, we have to be clear. And so the first is a failure of communication. It's that belief that familiarity creates clarity and it doesn't. We have to continually clarify what we want. 
the other thing, and it's very timely as you look at the world around us, is a slip in ethics. Uh, we end up doing things that we, we don't instantly, most leaders don't instantly become uh, unethical. They gradually become ethical, unethical. In, in one of John Steinbeck's books, uh, the character, one character says to another, how did you go broke? And, and the famous line is, at first slowly and then suddenly, right? Mm -hmm. Well, how do you become unethical? At first mm -hmm. slowly, you know, little things. And then over time, those little things snowball until one day you say, wow, I really, what did I become? You know, what did I become? Mm -hmm. And the problem with a leader is, is a leader, you know, replicates him or herself. So that has the potential. I just read some research recently that said the problem with toxic people in the workplace is if you allow them, toxicity spreads. And a lack of integrity does the same thing. If you allow it, a lack of integrity spreads. So I think that would be the second would be uh, number one is the, the mind reader trap. And number two would be a slip in ethics. Excellent. So thank you uh, for sharing the leadership and the, the, the principles because um, those principles, I think, help a lot of people without a title even, or even with a title, as I know. So uh, I appreciate that. Thank you oh, very thank much. You. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to Aim Higher with Skip Pritchard. Check out skippritchard.com for more episodes, interviews, book reviews, and leadership insights. And if you like what you hear, please rate us in iTunes. Until next time, remember, don't settle for the mediocre. Always aim higher.